Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Adam Hochschild, whose latest book is titled Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. There are seven previous books, including... King Leopold's Ghost, which also became a 2006 documentary film, Bury the Chains and To End All Wars. And in the process of this interview, I may bring up these other books because there are themes that work through all of your books. Sure. Teacher at the Graduate School of Journalism, UC Berkeley, worked in South Africa, civil rights worker in Mississippi in 1964 editor and writer at Ramparts, and co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine. This particular book is about the Spanish Civil War. Your last book was about World War I, To End All Wars. So I want to start by asking how you got from World War I to the Spanish Civil War, because interestingly enough, of course, there is a sequence, and the Spanish Civil War not only presages World War II, but at least from the Republican side and the equipment they use, it was the same as World War I, including the trenches. That's true. That's true. I wish I could say I got from one war to the other by logically going forward through history and finding how the, the First War laid the groundwork for the Spanish Civil War, but it didn't really work that way. When I finish a book, I look around for the subject for the next one, and it usually takes me to another country, often to another century. It has to be something that's gotten under my skin in some way. And the Spanish Civil War had been there for a long time uh, for me. I think uh, first because I knew half a dozen of the American veterans uh, of that war, all of them uh, men 30, 40 years older than me, all of them gone now. But uh, starting in my 20s, as I say, I knew half a dozen of them. Two of them were good friends for many years and used to hear their stories. And they always intrigued me. And then, like many people, uh, I read and admired greatly George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia about his experiences in Spain. And he, of course, takes a somewhat different view than did the volunteers who fought in the international brigades, read Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, so the war has always been there in the back of my mind. And when I finished the last book, was looking around for subject for the next one, I thought, well, maybe it's time to do Spain. So how did you start the research then? Well, the way that I like to write history is this. I like to try to bring a period of time alive or a particular crisis or crusade alive by following 10 or 12 people, zeroing in on 10 or 12 people. You can't really 
fit more major characters into a book than that and expect the reader to remember them, but 10 or 12 people who lived through an experience. I wanted to focus on Americans and the Spanish Civil War, in part because my knowledge of Spanish is minimal, my knowledge of English is fairly good, and I was just also interested in, you know, why did 2,800 Americans go off to fight in somebody else's Civil War, including these guys whom I knew? So I went looking for characters I could focus on. You can't write about Americans in the Spanish Civil War without mentioning Ernest Hemingway, so he is in the book, and his then-lover, later third wife, Martha Gellhorn. But other than them, the Americans, I think, that you'll, you'll meet in my book, most of them will be unfamiliar, even to people who've read several books on the Spanish Civil War. I also have an American villain, a bad guy who was uh, CEO of an oil company who, uh, which sold General Franco a lot of his oil. So there's an American villain as well as Americans on the side of the republic. Let me interrupt you for a second. How did you find him? Did you know about him beforehand? Well, often I get my best ideas through somebody else's passing mention or through a footnote. And if you read an economic history of the Spanish Civil War, there will be a sentence or two that mentions in passing that Texaco sold the Spanish nationalists, General Franco and his friends, most of their oil because it had a CEO who was sympathetic. And that's usually all they'll say. Sometimes there's a little bit more. Uh, I found some intriguing references in a long article about the Spanish Civil War that Noam Chomsky wrote some 50 years ago which led me to a Life magazine profile of this guy, Torquild Reber, the head of Texaco. And then I got really curious. What was an American oil company tycoon doing supporting what was essentially a fascist uh, government uh, in the mid-1930s? And I went looking for more about him and discovered a couple of articles that a Spanish historian had published in fairly obscure places in Spain. I started corresponding with this man. He very generously shared with me uh, all of his documents. Guillermo Martinez is his name. And gradually was able to dig out more. And then I went looking in the papers, for example. The, this guy, Torquild Reber, who sold General Franco all his oil, violated a number of American laws in the process. Was he ever prosecuted? So I went through the papers of Franklin D. Roosevelt's attorney general, where there's quite a bit about Reber and should they prosecute him, and the president seemed to blow hot and cold on that issue, eventually blew cold. I went through uh, papers at the Franklin Roosevelt Presidential Library in Hyde Park, New York, found a few more things there. So gradually, it's like putting together a mosaic where you're picking up the pieces from different places. Adam Hochschild, so you have him. Then because of history, you already have Hemingway and Gellhorn. But the rest of it is, what, starting to just read different books and going, aha, moments by looking in footnotes or one sentence, and suddenly that sets you off on a search? One of the nice things about the Spanish Civil War, you know, especially if you have a fairly narrow focus, as I did, which was primarily uh, Americans in the war, is that if you have a few weeks, you can look through 
pretty thoroughly just about all the books there are in a library having to do, in a good library like Berkeley, having to do with Americans involved in this war. And sometimes I found glancing mentions of characters who felt interesting to me, and I looked for more. As I talked to people about the search I was on, people would tell me about people. For example, I went to the Hoover Institution archives uh, at Stanford uh, looking for the papers of an American journalist, a quite obscure American journalist named Millie Bennett, Uh, who worked in Spain, but left a lot of papers, and I thought I might find something interesting in them, and indeed I did. But when I came in, the archivist asked me what I was working on, and I told him, and he said, do you know about Lois Orr? And this was somebody I'd never heard of at that point. I'd been on the hunt for several months, and he said, we have an unpublished manuscript of hers here, and uh, here's where you can find it. And she turned out to be In a way, I think the character I was most pleased to discover in the book, 19-year-old from Kentucky, lived 10 months in revolutionary Barcelona, wrote the most extraordinary series of letters home about it, and an unpublished memoir. Another unpublished memoir was by uh, ambulance driver James Nugas. Yes, his memoir actually, it's not a memoir, it's his diary that he kept in Spain. Nugas was... Uh, a well-published poet here in the United States. He was in his early 30s, volunteered to go to Spain with the medical unit, drove an ambulance in the thick of combat for four or five months. Everybody knew he was keeping a diary, but for decades it was assumed that it had been lost. And Nugas died only about 10 years after he got home from Spain, and everybody, including his widow, thought the diary had been lost. And then some 60 years after his death, in 2010, uh, a transcript of the diary turned up for sale in a Vermont-used bookstore. Nobody's quite clear how it got there, but it was clearly the real thing. And two fine Bay Area scholars of the Spanish Civil War, Peter Carroll and uh, Peter Glazer, edited it for publication, and it was published uh, about five years ago and is a marvelous source to draw on. I think it's probably the best piece of writing by an American volunteer who went to Spain. Uh, There are a lot of different areas, um, but one more question about the writing, and then I want to go into those. You assemble these different people, 10 or 12 people. Mm -hmm. Were there people who were almost in the book? Oh, yes. You could write another book about Americans in the Spanish Civil War and have 10 or 12 completely different people. I don't think they'd be quite as interesting as mine, but yeah, I could certainly do another book with completely different people. But I partly picked the people because they seem to me to have particularly dramatic or interesting stories. So uh, among these other people, uh, can you name one or two and what they did? The people who didn't make it into the book in a big way, some of them are mentioned in passing. Steve Nelson was an American uh, officer and commissar, actually, in the American battalion in Spain, who seems to have been uh, widely admired and respected, who was well-liked by veterans in the years uh, later on. Milton Wolf, who lived in or near Berkeley for much of his life uh, and lived into his 90s and was the last commander of the American battalion in Spain. Uh, Interesting folks, but I think I found some who are even more interesting. Uh, You mentioned toward the end of the book Alba Bessie. 
But you don't go into what happened to him, and he was one of the Hollywood Ten. <laughs> he was, yeah. There's so much. I mean, you could add a couple more chapters on everybody's life after Spain. But Alva Bessi became a screenwriter. He was one of the Hollywood Ten. He went to prison for a year, uh, wrote a couple more books uh, about Spain, include after his excellent Men in Battle, which was published uh, in 1940 and which I draw from quite a bit. He also kept a diary in Spain. And everybody, by the way, should do historians a favor and keep a diary. It makes such wonderful material to draw from. And at times, there are things that were, are in his diary that I wonder, why didn't he put them in the book? But since I have access to both, I could use them. Well, I think we live now in a more disposable universe where we write via email and... We keep everything in our computers, and if the lights go out, the That's historians right. will suffer. Yeah, or the computer memory system changes or something. You can't read a floppy disk from 20 years ago in one of today's computers. Adam Hochschild, there are so many different areas to cover, but I want to move into the areas of things I didn't know about the mm -hmm. war, one of which was the complexity on the Republican side. Now, for those who don't know about the war, in a nutshell, I guess you can say that the, there was a monarchy. It became a democracy. Uh, leftist liberals were elected and a very powerful landowner, military, right-wing combine, if you want to call it that, overthrew them over time, and that was the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, that's a good summary. The democracy, the Republican side to which all of these Americans came was definitely not monolithic. What I didn't know about was the complexity of the groups. There was Stalin, there was Pum, P-O-U-M, who were the Trotskyists. Well, sort of. They were not officially part of the Trotskyist movement. It was a, a, an anti-Stalinist, very left-wing party. And there were the anarchists. Right. And there is very little mention in history, though it's in Spain in our hearts, of what happened in Barcelona in 1936. Did that surprise you? Had you heard of this giant communal city? The only place that I could think of even remotely like it was 1870 France. Exactly. Paris. The, the, the Paris Commune. That was the only time in Western Europe that something had happened on this scale. It was a remarkable moment, and basically what happened was this. When the Spanish nationalists, who quickly came under the leadership of General Franco, staged their coup attempt, July 1936, in most of northeastern Spain, Barcelona, surrounding Catalonia, neighboring Aragon, and a few other areas, they were defeated not by loyal army units, but by workers' militias, militias that were hastily organized, badly armed, put together by left-wing political parties and trade unions. And these workers then found themselves in control of a large swath of the Spanish Republic. And they put into effect over the next six months really the most wide-ranging social revolution Western Europe has ever seen. Workers took over factories, including the Ford and General Motors plants in Barcelona, Peasants took over these huge estates in the countryside that they'd worked as landless laborers. Uh, locomotive engineers took over the railway system. 
uh, at the at Barcelona's Hotel Ritz, the largest and fanciest hotel in the city. The dining room got taken over by waiters, cooks, and busboys, and they turned it into People's Cafeteria Number One for the poor. And an amazing, amazing series of things like this. And it attracted sort of young, independent-minded leftists from all over the world. Uh, this couple I mentioned, Lois and Charles Orr, uh, were in Europe on their honeymoon. They heard about this. They had to go to Barcelona and see it firsthand, and they did. Moving in their circles in Barcelona was a 23-year-old German political refugee named Willy Brandt. Uh, somebody else who arrived a couple of months down the road, and actually Charles Orr, the American, uh, was the first person he talked to when he got off the train in Barcelona, was George Orwell, who writes about this moment, this political moment, very movingly in homage to Catalonia. Oddly, it was almost entirely ignored by Hemingway and the other foreign correspondents in Spain at that time. They were so intent on covering the battlefield that they wrote hardly anything about this social revolution. Uh, today, is, are there any vestiges left? I mean, do people in Barcelona even know about that period? Some do. When I went to Spain researching the book, I went to an anarchist cafe in Barcelona whose walls were decorated with posters and pictures of that era. And I think there's a, a, a remnant of it also in that Spain has the largest a collection of worker-owned cooperatives in Europe under the heading of Mondragon. I didn't have a chance to see it when I was there, but I have friends who visited it and said it's quite a remarkable collection of industrial workshops of different kinds, and now they do software and other stuff as well, all worker-owned. And I think it, it comes out of this anarchist tradition, which was very strong in Spain, even though by the 1930s it had disappeared almost everywhere else in the world, it had to go underground during the Franco regime, but it survived in some form. It's interesting that once the Soviet Union vanished, it's like in Russia it never existed, and once Franco vanished in Spain, it's like Franco never existed. Well, the Civil War is a very fraught and difficult period for Spaniards to talk about because, you know, I've been going around the country talking about this book for the last few weeks, and everywhere I've spoken, there have always been one or two Spaniards in the audience who always come up and want to talk afterwards and very often have stories to tell about how they came from divided families. I met a Spanish consul in New York who said, I had one grandfather who was murdered by the Spanish Republic and the other was murdered by Franco's nationalists. And I had a great uncle who was a Spanish Republic sympathizer he was uh, a doctor. He was in the middle of performing surgery when the hospital he was in got taken over by the nationalists, and he had to quickly change the insignia on his uniform. So every family has these tensions within it. And, of course, coming to terms with the past is much more difficult because it didn't just end in 1939 when the Spanish Civil War ended. Franco remained dictator of Spain for the next 36 years until his death in uh, 1975, and his secret police were hounding and torturing people right up to that point. So there are still a lot of people alive today who are, you know, walking the streets in Madrid who worked in this highly repressive regime. So it's been difficult for Spaniards to come to terms with. Women 
and their memoirs play a huge role in Spain and our hearts. And you do make mention in the book that for whatever reason, maybe you can figure out a reason, women gave the truer account. One such woman was Virginia Cowles, who was a correspondent in Spain. And I ended up feeling she was the best English language reporter on the scene. I read everybody else who was there, all of Hemingway's dispatches, everything that Martha Gellhorn wrote. Virginia Cowles, who never went to college, was 26 years old when she arrived in Spain, had never covered a war before, I think did a better job than anybody. And the book that she wrote about that period called Looking for Trouble was recently reissued and feels just as fresh today as it must have then, whereas the memoirs of various other correspondents really have a kind of a musty feel. Cowles also did something remarkable in that she's one of the very few journalists who managed to report from both sides in the war, both the Spanish Republic and nationalist Spain. And in nationalist Spain, she was the first foreign journalist to get any Spanish officers to admit that they had bombed Guernica. Franco and Hitler were strenuously denying it at this point. If you go to Guernica now, what do you see? You know, I did not go there when writing the book. I believe it has been entirely rebuilt. There's one town... Belchite, which was very badly damaged in the war, that's sort of not been rebuilt and left as a memorial of sorts. But Guernica, I think, by this point has been completely rebuilt. As I was reading Spain in Our Hearts, I was having trouble, particularly in the early section, picking the book up because the amount of violence is just extreme. We try to comprehend World War II, mm-hmm. and that's beyond comprehension. Yeah. But the Spanish Civil War, thousands of people are executed. In fact, Franco's entire point of view was not, we'll capture them, but anybody who doesn't immediately give us the fascist salute will kill. That's right. This was a very nasty civil war, as civil wars often are, but I think this one particularly so. Right from the beginning, Franco and his people decided their purpose was to sow as much terror as possible in the civilian population among people who didn't agree with them. Uh, They deliberately set out to assassinate anybody who was prominently in any way connected with the previous regime, the democratic regime, whether these were city officials, uh, provincial or national legislators, 40 members of parliament uh, were shot. You know, people were were killed for the crime of carrying a labor union card. In nationalist-controlled territory, uh, 150,000 civilians were deliberately killed during the war years, 20,000 more afterwards. And this isn't even mentioning the hundreds of thousands who were thrown into prison under horrible conditions. Uh, Dissident women had their breasts branded with the nationalist emblem of yoke and arrows. Things were fairly violent on the Republican side also, where it's estimated that mobs killed 49,000 civilians, almost all of them during the first few months of the war. These were nationalist sympathizers or presumed sympathizers. The Republic's government, to its credit, did its best after the first couple of months to try to bring these killings to a halt. It was never a matter of deliberate policy as it was on the nationalist side. One thing I didn't know about was 
you know, we today see FDR as some kind of superhero, yeah. <laughs> you know, for those years, uh, getting us out of the Depression, the New Deal, setting up the semi-socialist elements of the United mm -hmm. States during that period. But in Spain, in our hearts, he looks more like a triangulating Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. FDR was certainly a man who hated fascism, but he was a very shrewd politician. He knew that there was really very little constituency in the United States for intervening in the Spanish Civil War in any way. There was a very strong, widespread isolationism here in the 1930s. For example, FDR read opinion polls very closely, and he knew that a Gallup poll had surveyed people, you know, do you have an opinion about the Spanish Civil War? Of the people who had an opinion, many more people favored the republic than favored the, the, the nationalists. But the majority of Americans had no opinion. As opposed to, say, a pressing question of the day, which was, should King Edward VIII of England abdicate his throne to marry the woman he loved? And the great majority of Americans knew what they thought about that. Uh, so he knew he had no constituency. It's also believed that prior to the 1936 election, the first time he ran for re-election, which was, of course, uh, some months after the Spanish Civil War began, it's widely believed that FDR promised the hierarchy of the American Catholic Church that he would not intervene in any way in Spain. For obvious reasons, this is one of those promises that was never written down on paper by either side, but it's widely believed that this is what he, what he said. The American Catholic Church, of course, like the Catholic Church hierarchies everywhere, were bitterly opposed to the Spanish Republic, which was very anti-clerical and which uh, had been the scene, actually, of the deaths of uh, many thousands of clergy. Angry mobs sort of considered them handmaidens of the big landowners and the big industrialists. And the Republic, during the five years that it existed, had started to take education out of the hands of the church and to secularize it. Did the uh, Roosevelt administration know that Texaco was selling oil to Franco? They knew that he was selling oil. Uh, they knew that he was violating uh, U.S. law by doing so, by shipping it on Texaco tankers, and he was violating U.S. law by selling it on credit because uh, U.S. neutrality legislation said you couldn't do either of those when having economic dealings with a country at war. He got a mild wrist slap from the government, $22,000 fine from the Justice Department, but no further prosecution. Uh, Roosevelt and the administration did not know that he was selling Franco that oil at a huge discount. Reber's shareholders and apparently, as far as we can tell, his board of directors also didn't know this. And they also didn't know, and I'm sure the board of directors and the shareholders didn't know this, that he was supplying Franco with a steady stream of intelligence information because Texaco had tank farms, uh, installations, uh, loading docks at ports all over the world. Reber sent out word to all these people, send in any information you can gather about oil tankers heading for the Spanish Republic. And as this came in, it was passed on immediately to the Nationalist High Command. 
sounds a lot like the Bush administration and the Saudi government and the entire al-Qaeda conspiracy, too. I mean, it, it, it seems like history sometimes repeats itself in weird ways. It does. Uh, the one thing I would say for Roosevelt in this situation, though, is that even though he, whether because of his belief that he had no constituency backing him up on this score or because of the promise he'd made to the Catholic hierarchy, even though he never intervened in any way to help the republic, he was clearly agonized about it. And he kept trying out on people various schemes for getting arms to Spain through third countries and so on. And finally, in January 1939, just before the war ended, he told a cabinet meeting, we made a grave mistake by not selling arms to Spain. Adam Hochschild, there are several little tiny stories in the book, and one of which is the battle between the two New York Times correspondents. Had that ever been written about before? Not much. There's certainly PhD theses on the subject and so forth, but I don't think, I take that back. There's a British historian, Paul Preston, who did a book on foreign correspondence covering the war, who, who does say something about this. Is a very fine historian, actually. But I found it wonderfully fun to follow because, you know, like a lot of people, I'm a New York Times addict. I lose 45 minutes to an hour to the paper every day. And one of the things about the Times, of course, is that it's so gray. If you're going to be a reporter for the paper and poke fun at somebody or subtly criticize someone, you have to do it in a very indirect way. And the Times diligently set out to cover the war. They had uh, a well-known correspondent, Herbert Matthews, who covered the war from the side of the Spanish Republic based in Madrid. And another correspondent, a former colleague of Matthews from the Times Paris Bureau named William P. Carney, who covered it from the side of the Spanish nationalists. And each man became a passionate believer in the side that he was covering, completely blind to its faults. Matthews was the better reporter and spent more time on the front lines, but was completely blind to, uh, you know, a lot of the problems that the Republic had. Carney was such an enthusiast for General Franco that, uh, Years later, after he retired from the Times, he was given a job as a paid propagandist for the Franco regime in the United States. These two guys absolutely hated each other and occasionally took digs at each other in print. For example, Carney, covering the from the Nationalist side, at one point reported that the Nationalist army had retaken a, a city that the Republicans had recently captured, Terrawell. And... Matthews, who had just been to Terrell, knew that this was not so, was furious, returned to the city, wrote a dispatch from there with the Terrell dateline, and then ended it by saying, you know, in this war, one should only believe what one sees with one's own eyes, uh, which everybody knew was a dig at Carney, who was notorious for reporting things from well behind the lines and relying on Franco's press releases. As time went on, Stalin's purges were happening at the same time. Uh, you visited gulags for one of your books. 
Did that influence the writing of Spain in Our Hearts? Well, it was another thing that sort of drew me to the subject. Here's what that experience was. Uh, Some years ago, 25 years ago, I lived in what was then still the Soviet Union. It was actually the last year of its existence for six months to research a book called The Unquiet Ghost, Russians Remember Stalin. And at one point, I was in a very remote spot, Karaganda in Kazakhstan, which was a center of Stalin's gulag network. And some people there had taken me to see a gulag, Stalin-era gulag graveyard. And to my amazement, dozens of the graves had Spanish names. And they explained to me these were Spaniards who were refugees from the Spanish Republic, came to Russia at the end of the war, but like so many other foreigners who were in the Soviet Union at that time, they became victims of Stalin's paranoia, and a couple of hundred of them were were locked up in the gulag, and many of them died there. Stalin ended up being the only person who would sell arms to the Spanish Republic. The U.S., Britain, and France all refused Uh, when the Republic lost more and more ground to the nationalists, Stalin finally stepped in and said, I will sell you the arms that you need, but in return, I want high positions for Spanish and Soviet communists in the Republican Army High Command uh, and in the security forces. Uh, He would very much like to have seen in Spain a repetition of the purge trials in Russia where, you know, hundreds of thousands of his real and mostly imaginary opponents were being slaughtered as he was trying to establish, you know, that he was boss. It didn't happen on that scale in Spain. But, you know, there was a nasty suppression, uh, particularly of the small party whose militia George Orwell fought in, the PUM, which Stalin was fiercely opposed to because it was headed by a couple of former communists who had turned against Stalin. You teach in the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, and when you're reading these reports and discovering, for example, the herd mentality of the reporters who all wrote the same stories. But I also want you to relate it to what's going on today and how the current punditocracy and Mm -hmm. Beltway seem to be doing the same thing. I'm very interested in herd behavior among journalists because I've reported from overseas myself on occasion uh, a couple of times from, from conflict zones of one sort or another. And one thing I always notice is that in those situations, reporters travel in packs. I mean, I'll give you one example. From some years ago in apartheid-era South Africa, there was a, uh, some mass killings by police. There was a huge funeral with like 50,000, 60,000 people held in Alexandra Township outside Johannesburg. I went there. And I discovered in this this big sort of football stadium or soccer stadium where the funeral was being held, uh, you know, 50,000 very angry, distraught people. There in the middle was sort of a space for the press, you know, a couple of dozen reporters milling around. In the towards the center of the group, it was the foreign press. In the center of that, the American reporters And right smack in the center of that group were the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and the Washington Post reporters, 
all talking to each other. What about? They were trying to agree on their estimate for the size of the crowd, so they'd all go with the same estimate in their stories. And I've noticed this again and again. Reporters always get anxious that they're going to miss something that the other newspaper or the other network is going to cover. So you keep a close eye on what your colleagues are doing because you never want to get a message from home saying from your editor back 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 home saying, you know, well, the other newspaper or the other network has reported this or that, and why haven't we heard about it from you? So they keep a close eye on each other. They tend to cover the same stories. In Spain, the big story was the bombing of Madrid and the gains and losses on the battlefield. And this is what 98% of what they wrote was about. They ignored that social revolution in the, in the Northeast. For every thousand stories on battlefield events, you're lucky if you can find one story that touched on this other stuff. They completely ignored the question of where the na nationalists were getting their quite bounteous oil supply, which ought to have been an obvious question because Hitler and Mussolini, who were supplying the nationalists with arms and military advisors and troops, were oil importers, not oil exporters. would have been very expensive for them to advance Franco the money to buy oil on the world market. It, it seems that today, if we look at how Trump was covered last fall into the year, we see a similar herd mentality, and nobody bothered looking at his supporters. Nobody even thought about the fact for several months that they were being played. And that uh, the more outrageous things he says, the more it seems to help him rather than hurt him. Presidential campaigns, I think, are especially times that bring out the herd mentality, and especially today when technologically, you know, you can flip the channel on the TV, you can click on another website on your computer, you can get somebody else's stream of information about the same event. It's difficult to be a journalist under those circumstances, uh, but I still think the best reporting comes from people who really follow their own instincts and depart from the herd. Adam Hochschild, in writing the book and doing your research, did you find anything that absolutely surprised you that you had no idea was there? Obviously, there were diaries that you wouldn't mm -hmm. have known, but how about facts about the war, information that might have changed your perception a bit? I can't say that my perception was hugely changed. Some things really surprised me. The The role of Texaco, I thought, was just extraordinary. And, as you know, this is largely left out of the history books. And the fact that they were giving the nationalists all this intelligence information, and you can trace some of that to the sinking or capture of tankers heading for the Spanish Republic. Uh, that was extraordinary. I think also I was somewhat surprised and impressed to find that even in the midst of war, even though they were under tremendous pressure from Stalin, who was supplying them with, with uh, essential arms, selling them essential arms, the government of the Spanish Republic remained trying to do the right thing when it came to its judiciary. Stalin wanted purge trials for uh, this, this small party he didn't like, the, the PUM. PUM leaders were put on trial, but some of them were let go. None of them were sentenced to death. All of them managed to get out of prison before the end of the war. And the Republic actually 
tried to prosecute uh, both communists and anarchists who had taken part in some of these mob killings uh, that had happened on its territory early in the war. Very hard for a government at war to do that kind of thing. In writing King Leopold's Ghost, Bury the Chain to End All Wars, you must have seen patterns where you're going, oh my God, deja vu. (laughs) Were there patterns like that in doing the research for Spain in Our Hearts where you said, wow, that's sort of like King Leopold's Ghost or To End All Wars? Not exactly. Certainly every time you see human beings doing things that are unimaginably cruel, whether, as I say, it's Franco's nationalists branding women on their breasts or putting people in prison under horrible conditions. You think, how can people do that to each other? And then you think, wait a minute, you know, I've seen that before in these other periods that I've studied, you know, slavery, colonialism. Uh, We humans have great capacity to do these horrible things. But I think I'm always attracted to write about periods when there were other human beings who tried to do something about it, who tried to fight for the side that they thought was right, or whether in the First World War that meant not cooperating with the war effort, because many people thought that war shouldn't be happening at all, whether it meant in Spain going and fighting for the Spanish Republic as it tried to resist uh, a fascist takeover, uh, whether in, in King Leopold's Ghost it meant you know, people fighting against colonialism and against the atrocities that that brought with it. Uh, I'm always attracted to moments when there were idealists who were trying to change something. Uh, you make a mention in an interview that if you were going to look at today, you'd be talking about people trying to deal with climate change. But the difference is that it's not people against people. It's people dealing with the planet. Or is it? Well, I think you do have to work against people who are deliberately trying to ignore this issue or sweep it under the rug. I do feel that's the big issue facing us. You know, there's, there's an American who was a volunteer in Spain whom I quote in the book, uh, 23-year-old Hyman Katz, who wrote to his mother from there a couple months before he was killed, saying, if I hadn't come to Spain for the rest of my life, I would feel, why didn't I wake up when the alarm clock rang? Well, clearly the biggest alarm clock ringing that we hear today, I think, is about climate change. And to me, the, the, that's where the front lines are. And when I think of, you know, people like the folks from 350.org that, you know, have been getting arrested at these protests at the White House, uh, other people doing similar things in other countries, trying to engender a sense of urgency on this issue. I think that's where the big battle is today. I don't mean in any way to diminish the work of people who are working for all kinds of other good causes as well, such as reducing the enormous inequalities in this world. But um, we're all going to be underwater unless we succeed on the climate one. Or we may all be underwater anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One other thing I noticed about Spain in our hearts, which is something that if you think about from two seconds, you kind of get... Because as I was growing up, all of these Lincoln Brigade people were still alive, is that the generation that went was very young. They were 19, 21, 22, the same people who might be supporting Sanders today, the same people who fought against the Vietnam War at another time, that that particular generation 
is a generation wanting to change the world. And that doesn't change. That doesn't change. Although, actually, the people who went to Spain, this was one thing that surprised me, were a little bit older on average than you might expect. The average age was 28 or 29. I think it was 28.5, something like that. Because they were not only college students, they were people who had been working for some years and were unemployed. Uh, They came from industries where there were big strikes. Uh, I was surprised to find out that the average age was was older. But they certainly were idealistic. They were people who wanted to change the world. They felt that the big fight was the fight against fascism. They had illusions about one, you know, about some things. Um, You know, the great majority of them were members or sympathizers of the Communist Party, and, you know, almost all of them subsequently left it. But the fight that they were in was not in the Soviet Union. It was in Spain. The other thing was that they all, or many of them, really did sense that a war was brewing and that the enemy was Hitler. And that threads its way through the book. Yeah. That was clear to everybody at this point because Hitler, who'd come to power in 1933, by 1936, when the Spanish Civil War began, he was already talking about expanding into Eastern Europe, about coming to the rescue of ethnic Germans who were outside the Reich, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Plus, he was developing the weapons for the war that he was clearly determined to start. And a lot of the best-known German weapons from World War II, the Messerschmitt 109 fighter plane, the Stuker dive bomber, the 88-millimeter artillery piece, were used for the first time in combat in Spain on quite a wide scale. And it was, and Americans and British and French and other volunteers were among the victims of those weapons. When reading about villages destroyed by dive bombers, I was thinking it's almost like spring training for World War II. That's right. That's right. And a lot of these German pilots and so on went on to take part in the Blitzkrieg of Poland or to train the people who did. A couple of last questions. The first is, and this is one of those broad questions, what can we learn from learning about this? What What do we take away, do you think? I think we ought to take away first a feeling of don't deny the obvious. When there is a uh, a right-wing coup in a country that is, you know, where where the, the plotters of that coup are being heavily supported by Hitler and Mussolini, you can expect Hitler and Mussolini to launch a larger war, and that indeed is is what happened. I think that means that we really do need to look at people like Trump or Cruz and not immediately say, ah, they wouldn't be as bad as we think they might be. I would agree. I mean, I see some really uncomfortable echoes between things that are said by people like Trump here, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Uh, the new right-wing leader in Poland, that have some scary echoes from the 1930s. Uh, I think folks like this often hearken back to an imagined glory in the past, you know, make America great again. Well, 
Mussolini wanted to restore the glory of the Roman Empire. Franco wanted to restore the glory of the Spanish Empire in the Americas, although how that was going to happen, nobody quite knew. Also, when you see somebody making a particular ethnic group, the villain, you know, for Hitler, it was the Jews. For Trump, it's the, the Muslims and the Mexicans. For these folks in Eastern Europe today, it's the flow of Syrian refugees. That's another, you know, alarm bell that should go off. One final question. Have you started work on another book? Not yet. I have a hard time finding a subject for a book. I've tried to keep off the streets and out of trouble by writing magazine pieces, book reviews, introductions to other people's books, that kind of thing over the last uh, few months, but I've not yet got a new topic in focus. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 